Let's go ahead and pray. Okay. Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for uh, bringing us together safely this evening. Help us to uh, be attentive and, and be, be able to learn more uh, about you and, and the Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, we thank you uh, for the blessings you've given us and the time that we have this evening to learn about you. And uh, we pray that uh, we'll be granted safety on our way home tonight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I was telling uh, Ken here before uh, the, before we came in here, I, I just got my eyes dilated at the at the eye doctor, so I'm having a little bit of trouble here tonight. So I'm going to have some reading glasses on at least to, to, to stumble through here. So sorry about that. Uh, so we are picking up here, very bottom of page 52 in your notes. Uh, we just finished up a discussion of sanctification. And then two weeks ago, Bill Combs here uh, uh, walked you through this question of the filling of the Holy Spirit, which has been rendered somewhat sort of a, of a mystical thing that is probably uh, overthought and overwrought in, in, in much of evangelical theology. And I, I, I'm very hopeful and confident that he gave you the goods there on what the filling of the Spirit is. There's nothing really mystical about it here. It's rather keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, doing uh, what the Holy Spirit expects us to do as mediated through the Christian Scriptures. So uh, being filled with the Spirit is not something magical, uh, but something that is somewhat ordinary or routine that we ought to be engaged in on a regular basis. What we want to start with tonight, then, is a discussion here of the works of the Holy Spirit in the church specifically. Okay, so we've talked about uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in believers with something of an emphasis on what he does with Old Testament saints. Uh, But here we're going to get into a question of what the Holy Spirit does specifically to church saints, that is, saints in in the present era. And we want to start with this discussion, this is really the... The, pretty much the whole of the discussion here is spirit baptism and it and what attends it. Uh, again, this is another doctrine uh, relative to the Holy Spirit uh, that has been, uh, you know, sort of people have taken it and run with it in strange directions here. And I, let's see if we can't sort of uh, contain this a bit as we talk about uh, this uh, this idea that shows up first here in the book of Acts. So let's start with what it isn't, uh, because there are some, like I say, some some ideas about baptism, spirit baptism out there that are probably incorrect. Okay, first of all, spirit baptism is not a charismatic experience. Okay, uh, because the baptism of the spirit is often connected in the book of Acts with miraculous gifts, probably not as often as perhaps we we, we might think, but certainly in Acts two, in Acts chapter eleven. Uh, we find that there is this baptism of the Holy Spirit that results in miraculous gifts. Many Pentecostals and other charismatics teach that spirit baptism is a normative work of the Holy Spirit in all true believers that necessarily involves regular ecstatic experiences, most typically speaking in tongues, glossolalia, or being slain in the Spirit or other supernatural practices, sometimes bizarre. But as we shall see, now spirit baptism is itself not experienced, and it occurs only 
once. Okay, uh, and so uh, whatever uh, spirit baptism is, we, we don't want to uh, run past this. Okay, so it's a, it's a work in all true believers, uh, but it does not necessarily involve regular ecstatic experiences. Uh, in fact, uh, if, as, we, as we look at uh, the practice of tongues in the church, uh, Paul is very careful to say in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 that not all have these ecstatic experiences. Not all have, even though, even in that day uh, when tongues were practiced in the church, not all did it. And so the idea of uh, making uh, the, uh, the speaking in tongues or other ecstatic experiences necessary as a proof of salvation really has no basis in the Christian scriptures. Find secondly, that spirit baptism is not a second work of grace. As we've seen above, some, such as those who are of the Wesleyan persuasion and uh, some who are of, in Keswick theology, see spirit baptism as an endowment of sanctifying grace subsequent to salvation. So you're saved with an act of justifying grace. And then afterward, you have a second work of grace, a work of sanctifying grace, in which the Spirit begins to counteract the sinful influences of the legal or carnal believer and secures control over him. Okay, So the Holy Spirit then uh, treats the believer as something like a marionette or a puppet, where the Holy Spirit starts to take over, and uh, our response is to let go and let God. And you heard a little bit about that last week, how that is an incorrect understanding. Um, and the result of this spirit baptism for Wesleyans and for Keswick is a, a, a temporary perfection, a temporary perfection. In this model, the baptism occurs only once, but may be supplemented later by recurring occasions of filling. Okay, But as we've seen above, and as you learned here two weeks ago, there's no second work or second step of sanctification, much less iterated fillings of the Holy Spirit that bring you up uh, to a kind of perfection. Sanctification instead begins immediately at salvation, and perhaps... I don't know what uh, what happened here two weeks ago, but uh, uh, a nice little diagram that uh, uh, perhaps can help here. Here's the cross. This is salvation. And uh, those who are of a Wesleyan or a Keswick persuasion say that once you get saved, you don't necessarily start growing immediately. Keswick says you may not grow at all. Wesley says you you try, you're striving but failing. So there's 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 inklings of inklings of progress being made, but more failure than success. Until you come to this point where you have this second work of grace, uh, a baptism of the Holy Spirit, a consecration event, and then you start growing. Uh, and so so there's the there's the baseline. Okay. But a better diagram would be that when you're saved and and you are justified, you are simultaneously sanctified. Talked about initial sanctification. They, they happen simultaneously. And so immediately upon believing, you begin to grow. And I, and I make it sort of a jagged line because we all recognize uh, that, uh, that progress is not uniform. Sometimes you take steps back. 
Uh, but uh, over the course of time, you ought to be able to look back and say there's progress being made. I guess, uh, as you read in your textbook, if you've done done that already, Ferguson says that uh, that sanctification is best measured in years rather than days. Okay, and I think that's 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 accurate because if you could look. If you look at today and compare it to yesterday, you say, I don't see any progress. In fact, I took a step back today. Well, if you're you're measuring your sanctification day by day, it's going to be like watching the stock market, right? Okay. Um, It's better to look at it over the course of years, and you should be able to see that uh, progress overall. And so, uh, so spirit baptism is not necessary as a second step of grace in order to launch uh, sanctification. However, we don't want to reduce spirit baptism to nothing. Okay, I think perhaps this is this is the uh, ditch that perhaps uh, I might be uh, tempted to fall in because I don't want to don't want to go crazy with the idea of, of spirit baptism. Or perhaps the the uh, the the other ditch is to do nothing with it. Reformed writers. Particularly, if you look in, in Reformed theology, they tend to minimize the baptism of the Holy Spirit to the point that it's almost not mentioned. And reject especially any understanding that dis- disrupts the continuity of the one people of God. As we're going to say, see here, spirit baptism is unique to the church age. Church saints are spirit baptized into a regenerate body. Old Testament saints did not experience this because... There was no regenerate body per se. Israel was a mixed group, right? There were unbelievers, there were believers, probably more unbelievers normally in Israel than there were believers. And so what we have here in the New Testament, the church, is, is a new organization, a new organism here, the church. And so this idea of being baptized into community with, the, with other regenerate people is something that's unique to the present age. Well... Reformed folk don't like that distinction between the people of God, the Old Testament people of God, the New Testament people of God. And so if you, as you read in a lot of Reformed theologies, uh, the doctrine of, of spirit baptism is often suppressed. Uh, you see very little, if anything, about it. And I, I don't want to go to that, uh, to that ditch either, because there is, it is an emphasis, I think an important emphasis, that we find uh, leading up to the book of Acts and then actually uh, enjoyed in the book of Acts. So it's, um, you, know, you can, we can see here that, that the first mention of it is in Matthew chapter 3, uh, the first experience of it is in Acts chapter 1, but it seems then, uh, from that point forward, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we were all baptized, into the body of Christ. So uh, Paul seems to think it's a rather important thing for uh, saints of the present age. And so, so as such, the significance of spirit baptism to the biblical storyline uh, can be suppressed, and I want to make sure we don't do that. Um, it's not just a new symbol, but actually a new reality that is being, uh, that is being uh, uh, expressed here in the, uh, in the church. So, any questions up till this point? We just talked about what Holy Spirit Spirit baptism isn't. So let's talk now about what Spirit baptism is. And I've got a definition here. It's the judicial placement of the true believer into the present age into the church universal 
the body of Christ, what I mean by judicial placement, is that it's not experienced per se. Okay, so the, the baptism itself, uh, the, the union that you have with this body is not something that is experienced per se. Now, there are experiences that result from your baptism and union with the church. But the baptism itself is not experiential. There, and again, I'm trying to avoid this idea that you, say, have to have this somehow some emotional surge or speak in tongues or something in order to know that you've got it. Uh, because you can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and, and not really know it. You know, there's a lot of people in, in, in the church today. When, when were you saved? You know, honestly, I'm not sure. I know I believe Christ now, and I'm, I'm very confident that, uh, that I, I am, I'm a believer now. But, you know, the, the event sort of eluded me. Uh, now, some of you can point to a, a point where you, you know, you, your, your resistance to God ended abruptly and, and you prayed definitely, and you can say, that's, that, that's the point I got saved. But others of you, particularly those of you who perhaps grew up in the church, may not be able to point at that, and, 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 this, and here's why. Because spirit baptism is, 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 not, is not something that is immediately experienced. There's nothing that, there's no light that goes on to alert you that it happened. So we've got here some passages that speak to this idea of spirit baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. And here we're talking not of the local church. We'll talk about that in just a bit here. Now we're talking about the one body of all believers in the present age, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. So in the present age, the body of Christ is not limited to Jews, uh, but rather is expanded to include not only Jews, but Greeks. Uh, it doesn't really matter your economic status, your, your ethnic status. Uh, we're all part of a, a single body together in Christ. And we've all been given a common spirit to drink here. Of course, that's metaphorical. Galatians 3, 27 and 28. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ... With the result that there are neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And it doesn't mean there's no distinctions that exist within the church, but the but the uh, but the distinctions that exist within the church are no impediment uh, to our fellowship. We are all viewed in common uh, before God in the life of the church. There's no priority given, for instance, to the Jew. I'll compare this to with Ephesians three. Uh, which says that you have heard about this administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, this mystery that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together of the promise of Jesus Christ. Well, this is something that couldn't have been said in the Old Testament. In fact, that's the nature of a mystery. A mystery of some, is something that was not previously revealed, now has been revealed, so previously, in, in the Old Testament era, uh, the concept of a single body containing both Jews and Gentiles was not something that would have been conceived. Uh, in fact, there's, 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 there's very much in the Old Testament that, uh, that insists that Jews and Gentiles be kept separate. Uh, but now, there's a mystery, something previously unrevealed, now revealed, that there is a single body 
uh, that is entered by spirit baptism, a body of believers made up of an ethnically diverse, economically diverse uh, body of believers. And that's all made possible by spirit baptism. Okay, a couple of questions here that perhaps uh, might come up, uh, and I want to address them. Maybe you're not thinking of them, but uh, I want to be thorough here. First question here: Are these the only two? Are these the only New Testament references to spirit baptism, or should we think of Pentecostal baptism as an instance of spirit baptism as well? Now, I say here while these texts are have variations of effect. Okay, so the effect of spirit baptism in Acts 2 and Acts 11 is rather spectacular. People are speaking in tongues. Where the, whereas the effects of spirit baptism in the, in, the, in the balance of the church age are somewhat ordinary. and take time to observe and, and develop uh, you, the, the, the ordinary gifts, such as teaching and hospitality and such are not something that just, you know, just sort of well up inside of someone and blurt out of them like the gift of tongues might. Okay. Nonetheless, all, all that being said, um, probably indicate the same kind of baptism. So I don't really think there should be any distinction here between these baptisms other than uh, the uh, the effects in the in the apostolic period were more observable than they are in the present day. There's no compelling reason to think that Paul is introducing a separate concept in 1 Corinthians 12 when he speaks about spirit baptism. Okay. I say, what about the baptisms of Romans 6 and Colossians 2? There's some, some who have taken these passages as references to spirit baptism and uh, have tied them with circumcision, not wrought by human hands. Consensus here is that these two texts are speaking of baptism as, as I use this word synecdical, as a, as, as a, as a figure of speech here, uh, whereby we're not looking just at the symbol, but all that it represents here. So the whole conversion experience. It's unlikely here that first century believers would have looked back specifically to spirit baptism as an impetus to holiness. Rather, they look back to their baptism, their, their water baptism, just as we do. You know, we, we, we look at that event, and hopefully it is a significant, was a significant event in your life. You know, where when you were water baptized, you recognized that you were publicly uh, aligning yourself with Christ and aligning yourself with the people of God, and it was a benchmark for you. And hopefully, from that point forward, uh, there was uh, perhaps a a, a a a more pronounced intentionality and resolve uh, to advance in your sanctification. So, I, I I don't think these baptisms in Romans six and Colossians two are references to spirit baptism, but to water baptism. And so. Uh, the question then that's going to come up in a few minutes is what's the relationship of water and spirit baptism? And, I, uh, and we are going to uh, look at that in a, in a few moments here. Questions up till this point? Scope of spirit baptism. Spirit baptism is limited to the present age. It's a mystery prior to the present age, prior to Paul's divulging of the mystery. Um, and so it's new. 
So it commences with the formation of the Christian church. It is when this body first formed, this body, this, this, this conglomerated body of, of Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, and so on and so forth, this, this multi-ethnic body of Christ. This is where spirit baptism begins. And so it is coterminous, I say here, with the scope of the church. And we can find this, I think, in, in the scriptures themselves. All references to spirit baptism in the Gospels are cast in the future tense. In Matthew, John says, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water on account of or as an expression of repentance. The periodic washings of a, of a cultic nature were somewhat common uh, in the, in the in the Judaism of the of the first century, so uh, this this he he says this baptism that I'm engaging in here, this baptism with water, is on account of or an expression of repentance. But there is coming after me uh, one who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He's going to baptize you in a new and more spectacular way. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And with fire, and this phrase is repeated in all the Gospels. So it's a rather important event. And so we, uh, we, we see him anticipating a day when there is going to be a new and different and better baptism than the one in which he was engaging. Now, so what is this baptism with fire that he ties together uh, with this baptism of the Holy Spirit? This is a this is a question that uh, has a multiplicity of answers in the literature. But let's talk about it a little bit. I say here a minority see this expression baptism of fire as referencing two mutually exclusive baptisms. So, in the coming age. Individual, individuals will either be identified with the body of Christ in spirit baptism or face a baptism of judgment, hence fire, at the second coming of Christ. Okay, so there's two baptisms. You're either going to be baptized with the spirit or baptized with fires of judgment. But based on the grammar, and I don't really want to go into the details of this, but uh, based on the grammar, a majority maintain that there's only one baptism in view here. So it's the baptism of spirit and fire. A single baptism of spirit and fire. This means then that the expression refers to a single baptism. But in within this group are two options. Some of this see this as a reflection of the cleansing of baptism and the purifying of baptism as aspects of regeneration. This makes some sense. Yeah, it, uh, that regeneration does have that dual effect, right? Uh, there is a, there's a cleansing and a purifying uh, that takes place in regeneration and continues in sanctification. Others see this use of fire as a reference to the tongues of flame that descended on the disciples on the first day, that the day of Pentecost, marking out in a spectacular way this new work of God in the church age. So this baptism of the Spirit is accompanied then by tongues of flame that's set upon each one of the apostles. The decision is difficult. Honestly, it probably makes little theological difference which you choose. I've, I've been inclined to the latter, although I'm, I'm certainly not opposed theologically to the former idea. 
Okay? So the baptism of fire is something that is part and parcel with uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Spirit baptism occurs first not many days after the ascension of Christ. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus says, You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So John the Baptist had made this prediction uh, years back that there is one coming who is mightier than I who is going to eventually baptize you with water and with fire. Now we come to the ascension of Jesus Christ, or, you know, this, this window in between his resurrection and ascension, and we, we realize we're getting close. Okay, to this event. And he says as much. Not many days hence, this baptism of the Holy Spirit is going to occur for the first time. And we can compare then Acts chapter 11, where the Holy Spirit fell upon uh, Cornelius and company, just as he had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John Baptist baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so we find that somewhere between Acts 1-5 and Acts 11-15 is the first instance of this baptism of the Holy Spirit and the obvious, uh, the obvious culprit here then is the day of Pentecost. Okay? And so then that on this day, uh, most uh, who are of a dispensationalist persuasion, most would say that the dispensation of the church and the organization which we know as the church began on this day of Pentecost. And there are further reasons to believe this is the case. I give some reasons here. The prophecy of Christ concerning the church assumes again that it's future to the Gospels. Upon this rock I will build my church implying that the church is not yet established, uh, but he would uh, build this, uh, uh, this, this church uh, here uh, following the confession that Peter makes. So this exchange, I say, follows shortly after the unpardonable sin, at which time the kingdom is postponed. And so much of Christ's ministry from that point forward is the unfolding of this new program that is going to fill the, the this this interim period uh, while the kingdom has been postponed until a later time. And so this this interim this interim organization is what we know as the church. Okay, this is the first mention of the church in the in the in the scriptures. Number two, that the church was formed by spirit baptism as a revelational mystery in previous ages tells us that spirit baptism was also a mystery. Remember, we looked at Ephesians 3. By revelation, there was made known to be the mystery. Well, what's the mystery? What hadn't been known, but Paul was the revealer of. Well, since this is what has been in other generations not made known, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Okay, and so he, uh, so he anticipates that he is the one who gives the formal explanation and divulges the details of this church. 
We also find, too, that Christ's death and resurrection are necessary to the inauguration of the church because they're essential to its rights. We're talking about uh, the uh, the rights of water baptism, R-I-T-E-S, you know, here. Water baptism and the Lord's Supper, the two ordinances of the, of the Christian church, uh, with, upon which the church is built, really couldn't exist prior to the death and resurrection of Christ. They would have had no meaning, right? Uh, because water baptism reflects the believer's identity, not only with the gathered body of Christ, but also with Christ himself. Just as he was buried in the ground and came up three days later, so we are buried, Romans 6 says, with him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life. Lord's Supper, likewise, makes no sense apart from the cross work of Christ. It's it's a celebration of the broken body and spilt blood of Jesus Christ. And so this this rite of communion uh, really would be nonsensical. Uh, this, this, this foundational rite or ordinance of the church could not have existed prior to the death and resurrection of Christ. And then finally, Christ's ascension precedes the inauguration of the church as well because he is essential uh, to the church's function. Ephesians 1 says this, Christ, uh, Christ's headship of the church demands that he ascended to the right hand of God in order to give gifts to men. Okay. And so it's from that place where he where he exercises the lordship over the church. He's not here in person. Rather, he had to go away in order to send the Holy Spirit and with him uh, the, uh, the the gifts of the Holy Spirit by which the church operates. Okay, and so this is that's re- reflected then in Ephesians chapter four. Okay, so the whole, so this this all this comes together to suggest here that the that the, the spirit baptism begins after the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, after the prophecy uh, that is made in the Gospels, and starting here in the beginning of Acts and continuing ever after, but not interminably. Spirit baptism, I say, ostensibly terminates with the rapture of the church. I say ostensibly because we don't actually have a Bible verse that we can point to that says spirit baptism ends now. Uh, we, this is a theological conclusion that we draw from the duration of the church. church begins at Pentecost, ends at the rapture, and since spirit baptism is that which is that which inaugurates and creates the church, it, we argue here that it must conclude then with the rapture of the church. And that doesn't mean there's no salvation after the rapture of the church. We, we know that in, during the tribulation period and even in the millennium beyond that there will be many who come to faith in Christ during this period. So we're not saying that the Holy Spirit becomes inactive after the rapture of the church. But this specific work of spirit baptism, of creating a regenerate body uh, in order to to carry out the the mission of God in the present age. Uh, that that work uh, is suspended when the church ends. Now, some perhaps might ask, "Okay, so what are they going to do during the rapture?" Are they 
uh, it's hard to say. You know, I, I, my, my guess is they'll probably do their best to, to gather together and, and worship, but it's going to be a difficult time. I'm not sure how much gathering is going to happen uh, during the period. So they'll probably follow some of the some some of the same procedures that we have in the present day, uh, but the the church as an organized entity officially ends with the uh, rapture of the church. Okay, I don't know if I can say more than that, um, but uh, I don't know if it gives a complete answer. But uh, I guess we'll find out. Well, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so what are the characteristics of spirit baptism? Well, it creates a single body into which all believers in the present age are baptized. First Corinthians twelve thirteen. Again, we are all baptized into one body. Now, I, I have this little note here about landmark Baptists. Anybody familiar with landmark Baptists? Okay, there are a lot more of them down south than there are up in this part of the country. But they're, 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 they occasionally show up around here as well. But they're, they're one, of the, one of the primary understandings here that they have is that they deny the universal church, uh, that there are only local churches. And they claim that the body mentioned here is the local church. But that really doesn't make any sense of the text. Uh, it's, not, it's not a water baptism into one body, but rather a spiritual baptism into a single body of all believers, Jew or free. It says all, all of us. In fact, Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. We don't, you know, where, where was where was Paul baptized? Well, probably would have been baptized into the Antioch church. It's hard to know exactly. I mean, he, uh, he I mean, he's, you know, he's, you know, knocked down on the on on the on the road there, Damascus Road, um, and then he's brought into this community. So he's probably baptized into the Antioch Church, and he's writing here to the Corinthian Church, and he says, "We're all baptized into one body." Well, that wouldn't make any sense if we're talking about water baptism into a single local body of believers, because uh, we know it's patently obvious that that's not true. Okay. Um, and so we find here that this is the broad church of God. Okay, so the audience to which Paul is writing, the church of God, which is at Corinth, with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all were baptized, so it's almost certain here that he is not, in fact, I would say not almost certain, it's really certain here uh, that Paul is speaking of a broader community than any single local church. Find something similar here in Ephesians 4 5. There's one baptism. I think again a reference here to this one baptism into the, the, the broad body of Christ. So it's a single event. It occurs only once. And it occurs at regeneration. There's no ongoing command to be repeatedly baptized in the scripture. You're baptized once. Uh, you're not m- baptized multiple times, whether you're talking about water baptism or spirit baptism. Now, this this suggests that spirit baptism is automatic at salvation and it never needs to be renewed. Since spirit baptism places one into the body of Christ, a serious theological problem would occur if it needs to be repeated. A believer would have to be unborn and removed from the body of Christ in order for him to be baptized back into it. 
And so, so the idea of being baptized more than once is really a, a, a theological absurdity that would require people to be outside the church and then inside the church and then outside the church and inside the church. Because remember, the primary action of spirit baptism is to bring us into community with the people of God, and that's a permanent community. Note that while the initial baptism occurred broadly at Pentecost, uh, for nearly all who had previously been converted, it, it occurred iteratively thereafter every time regeneration took place in the book of Acts. And so what we find at the day of Pentecost is a rather unusual event uh, because it's on this day that all people who were callers upon the name of the Lord are are baptized, you know, and we find 3,000 are baptized first day, if the number swells to 5,000 a couple of chapters later. And, and um, you know, I know sometimes it's, it's thought that, well, the evangelism is highly successful at this point, and perhaps there is uh, something of that there. But probably what we have here is all the believers that existed at that point are now being baptized into the one body. So I don't know that that necessarily means 3,000 people got saved at that point. But rather, 3,000 believers were baptized. 5,000 believers were baptized. Some of them perhaps believing for the first time, but many of them perhaps who had been, uh, who had been believing faithfully for years. Uh, and so they're all brought together at this point. This is the first event. And so all those who are believers now are baptized from this point forward, whenever we find someone being converted, they're immediately baptized. Okay, and so, so it's 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 something that that's routine upon regeneration after this initial and somewhat unusual event that takes place at Pentecost. And finally, the third characteristic of spirit baptism is that it's a judicial placement into the body of Christ it carries with it. No transformative effects or conscious feelings or emotions. It's accomplished by, it is accompanied by gifting, but of itself it involves no personal transformation per se. Okay? Now we do want to talk about the results of spirit baptism, but spirit baptism itself involves uh, nothing that can be experienced per se. Uh, questions or thoughts up till this point? Let's sort of turn the corner here at this point, yeah. I was just sitting here thinking, I have a friend that's free will Baptist. Uh -huh. Of course, they believe that you can lose your salvation. Uh, why don't they have to be baptized every time they get resaved or whatever the case may be? Yeah, and, and you, you've got a good, you've got a good point there. And, and in some cases they do. Do they? Is that right? So. I don't think they do at my friend's church. Yeah. I don't know that for a fact either. So what are the results then of spirit baptism? Here we're going to talk about some experiences uh, that we enjoy, some of which are somewhat mundane, but then we'll get into the spiritual gifts, including miraculous gifts, and then the, uh, the gifts uh, which we find ordinarily practiced in the church. But really, we want to start with these fundamental results of baptism first, before we get to the more interesting, perhaps, uh, questions of miraculous gifts and how do I find what my gift is in the in the, in the life of the church? There are some fundamental benefits of baptism uh, that, that we can overlook, and I don't want to do that because these are these are the primary ones. 
The result of spirit baptism, primarily, is that we become members of the body of Christ. We're united with Christ, and we're united with the people of God. Okay? So by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. In fact, uh, the, 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 the rite of water baptism seems very specifically designed to reflect this concept of spirit baptism. That's why we do it. Okay, we're, uh, I, I recognize that well, water baptism is, is something of a complex, a complex event. I mean, it, it, it reflects here a, 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 a connection with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so we're, we're seeing our connection with him. Uh, we're seeing our connection with regeneration. Uh, we're also seeing our connection with the broad people of God. So there's a complexity uh, to, to, to water baptism. But I think fundamentally what, it's trying to, what, what we do in water baptism is try to reflect what all is happening in spirit baptism. Okay, so what's the connection between these two? Well, there's a direct correlation. Water baptism symbolizes spirit baptism. So just as the spirit baptism initiates one into the one body of Christ, the the whole body, the universal body of Christ, as it's sometimes called, so also water baptism initiates one into a localized expression of that body. This is very important for us because it, 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 it hedges in the practice of baptism and tells us exactly how uh, we're supposed to practice it because it is uh, a, a, a microcosm of what's going on in the, uh, in, in, in the larger picture. We are all brought into the whole body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, by spirit baptism. We are brought into a local body of saints by water baptism. There are some important implications of that. Number one, water baptism is restricted to believers. Right? It's only those who have been united with Christ who may be baptized. Uh, we, we can't baptize people within, with an anticipation of this happening. We can't, we can't do this as some sort of a sacrament or means of grace whereby we sort of push people towards salvation. No, water baptism is restricted to believers, those who have been united with Christ. Since spirit baptism is connected with regeneration, and every time we see it, its symbol must also be connected with regeneration. Baptism must not be confused with circumcision. Okay, Circumcision was a, an entry right into the Old Testament people of God, right? To bring people into Israel, you know, men, into Israel. But remember, Israel is not the church. Israel is a mixed community, mostly unregenerate people in Israel. Circumcision then brought them into an ethnic or a, or, or a civil body. Baptism brings us into a spiritual body, a separate body, a different kind of body. So they're both entry rights, but they're entry rights into separate bodies. Okay? And so... Uh, so Circumcision was practiced on babies because it brought them into a civil community. Baptism brings us into a spiritual community and so can only be practiced on those who have been uh, united with Jesus Christ. OK? 
Okay. Does that make sense? Does that follow? So it gives perhaps an, an answer to why we as Baptists don't practice what's sometimes called pedo-baptism or baptism of infants, but rather practice what's sometimes called credo-baptism, that is, baptism upon the expression of faith. So credo, I believe. Okay. Secondly, baptism is essential to church membership. Water baptism is not only the first step of obedience, it is that, but it is also the initiation rite that grants entry into the membership of the local church. This is the pattern of the local church in Acts 2. Those who received his word were baptized and then added. Okay, uh, So baptism is essential to church membership. And so, of course, that's how it's practiced here at uh, Community. In order to be a member of the church, you must believe, express that by being baptized, by which you say, I am with Christ and I want to be with you. Okay, That's what's being said in, 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 in water baptism. Okay, so baptism is, is essential to church membership. It is the, way, the, the symbolic way in which one is initiated into the body. Thirdly, and here's where, where some get a little antsy here, but let's throw it out there anyway. Church membership is essential to baptism. Okay, what do I mean by that? No one should apply for baptism who's unwilling to join the church that is baptizing him. It is absurd to, to speak of uh, a baptized believer who is unaffiliated with a local church as it is to speak of a Christian who is unaffiliated with Christ. goes without saying, too, that baptism cannot occur legitimately outside the local church. Now, I know there's, there's a lot of organizations out there uh, who uh, practice baptism in something of an ad hoc manner, uh, you know, you know, you go to camp and, you know, a bunch of people get saved, just take them down to the camp lake and baptize them and, and, and or, or such and, uh, different, uh, you know, swimming pools here and there and, and everywhere, you know, with, with, with family, uh, organizations. But that's not what baptism is about. Baptism, when, when, when we are baptized, we are saying not only that I am with Christ, Okay, if, if it was just that, we could probably have baptism in any variety of places. But it's more than that. Baptism is not just I am with Christ, but actually I want to be a part of this body. So it is an appeal to the body. I would like to be a part of this body. And so we are baptized into a body. So the idea of someone being sort of, sort of baptized in puddle somewhere doesn't really make sense. You have to be baptized into a body. That doesn't have to be a baptistery in, in a church building necessarily, but it has to be a baptism into a church with the church present to witness it and to affirm it. Okay, and so that's how it's practiced here at uh, CBC. Okay, so qu questions on that? I know we sort of diverged a little bit here outside of of Holy Spirit directly to talk a little bit about ecclesiology. But uh, questions on that? Does that make sense? 
Yeah. That's a good, good point that you make in terms of being baptized into the church. We had heard of some, and again, hearsay, <clears throat> some people that we know that um, the father's friend baptized his son, just baptized him like in a pool or something like yeah. that. <coughs> but obviously not taken into account that baptism yeah. is baptized in somebody into the right. church. Yeah, now, now a church can appoint whoever it wants to baptize. So a church could appoint a father to baptize a child, yeah. but it still has to be in the context of the church. Right. That wasn't the case. Here. Yeah. Of those people who are baptized in the camp setting. What? Well, they're not baptized. That's that's yeah. Right. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, you say rebaptized, but no. e- effectively, we're saying they're being biblically baptized for the first time. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, that whole the whole word Anabaptist, uh, from which you know, which you know, we're sometimes accused of Anabaptism, rebaptism. Uh, most Baptists would say, well, wait a minute, we're not talking about rebaptism. We're saying what you did when you were a baby or whatever, or in the Camp Lake there, uh, that wasn't baptism. You got wet, uh, but you weren't baptized. <laughs> okay, so one is united then with Christ. Yes, I'm sorry. Okay. I was trying to figure it out over here. So with the people, so that camp setting, or you know, people go to like Israel and they get right. baptized, you know, all that. Um, would that be considered? I'm not saying their salvation determines right. by that because it's not the spirit baptism. But would it be sin? Because if it's obedience to, do you know what I mean? Would that yeah. be considered your sinning? Yes, I mean, I probably wouldn't just haul off and tell someone that, right? but 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 yes, and I think that's partly what what Paul is after in First Corinthians eleven when he says there are some who are eating and drinking, not correctly discerning or regarding or appraising the body of Christ, and since since communion is a celebration of community. Uh, one of the things that most Baptist churches historically have said is if you're properly appraising the body of Christ you will join it through baptism and so so most Baptist churches historically have said you, you cannot participate in communion unless you entered the church through baptism uh, so, so baptism is the entry right Communion is the continuation, right? If I can, if I can put it that way. So yes, the person who does not get baptized and does not join the church is not properly appraising the body of Christ in that sense. Well, a lot of times people will. Uh, I know some churches they'll say you can't go to communion unless you are a member of our church. They have closed communion, right? And. And they're saying that it's because we don't know if you're really saved or not. Right. Yeah. I, that okay? Honestly, that uh, that's a practice that that actually makes a lot of sense to me. The only reason, um, now I, I don't know what you practice here. Do you, do you practice close here? Close. Close. Okay. So close communion is you can be as as long as you are either a member of this church 
or a baptized member of a church of like faith and practice that you can you can participate. And the reason that is that is practiced is because we actually find examples of that taking place in the scripture. Paul, for instance, takes communion in several different churches as you work your way through the uh, through the book of Acts, for instance. Paul takes communion at multiple churches, so he's invited as a guest of the church to participate in communion without actually being a member of that church. Uh, so it, it appears then that there is a provision made uh, for uh, for sharing the Lord's table with guests whom the church knows to be of like faith and practice and true believer. Uh, but you know, there, there's, you know, we, we say, well, wouldn't it be rather cruel or harsh for a church to say no? Well, not if handing someone that bread and and grape juice is actually going to um, cause them uh, to be weak and sick and even die. It, it seems to be a, a, a cautious thing for a church to do. If, if the church is not aware of and is unable to corroborate that that individual is in fact a believer correctly regarding the Lord's body, then there's a good reason for them not to distribute the elements to them. It's not a statement that they're not saved. It's just a statement we just don't know. And we don't want to take that risk. We don't want to be liable for handing you something that could kill you effectively. Good. So we are united with Christ. We are united then with other believers. Just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually are members one of another. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, don't lose sight of the context of verse 13, which we've appealed to a couple of times tonight. Even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of one body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. And then comes the statement, for we have all been baptized um, into one body. So, we are united then, not only with Christ in regeneration, but also with other believers as a church. Okay, and so, uh, I'm going to skip this next box here. Uh, just because I don't know that it's necessary and uh, time is slipping away here. Uh, but uh, we are united with Christ and united with other believers and then given gifts for service. Again, again, the, the, the context of 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, which is our primary text for, just to talk, for talking about spirit baptism. We have all been united into one body through baptism. <clears throat> precedes a discussion then, a lengthy discussion here, of spiritual gifts. So when we are baptized into the body of of Christ, we are made participants in this work of the Holy Spirit in gifting us. We become body parts, as it were, uh, through baptism. In fact, Paul does, he sort of makes comparisons, you know, not all of us are eyes, not all of us are feet. And so we we're all participate then uh, in the body of Christ variously, separately, distinctly, uh, because God has, in, the, in, in spirit baptism, equipped each of us 
uh, with some piece of responsibility whereby the church runs. And I say here then, without baptism, there's no church. There, there, there are no body parts. Uh, and without the church, there is no venue in which believers may ply their gifts in service to God. So in the book of Acts, these gifts were dramatic, instantly recognizable, with the result that people could be identified uh, as spirit-baptized by their words and actions. But it is not, however, necessary to conclude that spirit baptism itself is experiential. Uh, spirit baptism simply places the person into the body in which sphere spiritual gifts then are operative. So, Which brings us then to our next topic here, which is the question of spiritual gifts. Okay? Questions at all up to uh, anything in summary here of, of uh, spirit baptism? turning a corner here okay spirit baptism uh, spirit, spiritual gifts then let's define them first and talk about their purpose because I think this is important to us uh, because uh, the question of you know you know, the very exciting question as to whether there's these spectacular gifts today I think really has to be uh, has to be asked and answered against the backdrop of some biblical some rather mundane biblical material about what gifts are and why God gave them to us. Okay, So a spiritual gift, what is it? It's a spirit enablement for service within the ministry and outreach of the local church. Okay, uh, These gifts are properly received in that they are meted out in accordance with the Spirit's eternal wisdom. Okay, So God in his wisdom through the Holy Spirit, gives gifts as he has determined. Okay? Now, some of these gifts in the early church were miraculously bestowed and supernatural. However, gifts are ordinarily developed in the believer providentially by many secondary causes and thus appear to be natural to us. Okay? Now, Paul, like Jeremiah speaks of the fact that he was gifted by God even from before birth. Okay, so this this development of gifts in believers doesn't necessarily happen instantaneously upon <clears throat> regeneration or entry into the church. Many of these things have been been latently developed by the Holy Spirit in us from eternity past. Additional gifts more suited to the church's needs, may also be sought. Okay, so you say, well, it's my spiritual gift. Ah, it's not my spiritual gift. I can't do that. Well, uh, Paul encourages uh, the folks in 1 Corinthians to seek the better gifts. Okay, and his, his statement here is that, that tongues are not the better gift. They're cool, but they're not the, they're, they're, they're not the needful gifts, the ones that actually make the church run. Okay, and so he says, seek the better gifts. And existing gifts may be further cultivated by the believer himself. And so Paul, for instance, tells Timothy to stir up the gift that is within you. Okay, so uh, so, so so don't think of this as some sort of a supernatural, bang, I'd suddenly have the gift. Okay, many of these things are naturally developed over the course of years. We can actually seek to develop gifts and we can and we can and we can cultivate the gifts that we already have. So don't think of them as some sort of a, a, a pow. 
Uh, they're, they're, they're often much more ordinary than that. All of the major discussions of gifts in the New Testament, and I list them there, define spiritual gifts necessarily by their function in and for local churches, and with few exceptions for one's own local church. And I, 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 I labor here with the realization that I am not exercising my gift in my local church tonight. So I, 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 I'm actually self-conscious of that here because of, because of what, I'm, what I'm actually saying here. Now, certain gifts can be plied outside of one's local church, evangelism chiefly, but others as well. They're always to be carried out at the behest of a local church and in the interest of advancing existing local churches and establishing new ones. Okay? Even the apostles, whose foundational functions were very broad and covered multiple churches, still acted in the interest of local churches, and after they are established, apparently they became parts of these local churches. You know, they, 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 they didn't persist in being over dozens of churches, they became part of a local church. There are no ad hoc gifts that can be practiced apart from local church oversight. Okay, the, the, that's their local church gifts, not universal church gifts. Okay. Letter C here, believers may have abilities and talents that transcend the life of the church, which is fine. They may surely use them to legitimate civil ends. You know, you you might have a you know, might have the ability to knit well or or have a radio voice, but that's that's not a gift per se. Okay. Uh, they, these are these are simply talents. Uh, abilities that you've cultivated. They're not technically spiritual gifts unless they're practiced in the local church and for the local church. Okay? Sometimes people ask, are there any gifts beyond the lists that we find in Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and 1 Peter? Are there other others? And my answer is maybe, okay? Um, the fact that there are is no common gift list. All the gift lists are just a little bit different from one another. Suggests that these are representative lists. Still, one spiritual gift cannot transcend the mission of the church or the regulations of public worship established for it. So in other words, the possibilities are limited. There are only so many things you can do in pursuing the mission of the local church. There are, you know, there are a lot of things, you know, skiing, for instance, you, know, you might be really good at skiing, but there's really no way you can ski uh, in order to advance the mission of the Christian church. Yeah, that's, so it's not a gift in that sense. So there, there is a limitation naturally placed upon uh, the, the, the kinds of gifts that we can develop. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that there are any gifts beyond those which are listed in these passages. If there are, I can't name one. Okay. Uh, so, I, 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 so I, I have something of an ambivalent answer to that. I don't know that they are necessarily comprehensive, but I can't think of one to add to it, if I can put it that way. Thoughts on that? So why do we have these gifts? Why do we need the purpose of miraculous gifts firstly, and then we'll talk about the purpose of ordinary gifts, and I'm going to deliberately stop uh, in the middle of page 59 because the discussion becomes too uh, broad to uh, go past it. Okay, so whatever we get to here uh, is, is as far as we're going to go. 
Why were the miraculous gifts given? This is very important to the next question we're going to ask. Do we still have them? Okay. What are they for? And if that reason no longer exists, then the answer to the next question has to be no. They're no longer practiced. So let's talk about what exactly uh, these miraculous gifts were designed to do. Hebrews 2 says this. God testified to the apostolic message by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Okay, so it gives here the purpose for these miraculous gifts, these signs, wonders, and miracles. Why were they there? To testify to the truth of the apostolic message. Okay, so in the absence of the completed canon, these apostles are speaking new information. How are we to know that it is accurate and from God? The miraculous gifts were there to attest to it. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The things that mark a true apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. Okay? So what's the argument here? Well, in the absence of the completed word of God, and due to the significant changes that are occurring within God's program in the aftermath of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, God supplied proof of the truth of the message of the early apostles and prophets in the form of miraculous gifts. Just as had been true of Jesus Christ himself, of his person, his office, and his message, they were attested by miracles so that there could be no question that, in fact, this was, in fact, the Messiah. So also there were miracles that attended this new information that the apostles uh, were giving in the first century. Okay, Note here that they are called signs of an apostle. Things that mark a true apostle. I think this is very important to us as we as we move into the into the question that's to, to to occupy some of our time next week. Is okay. Why would they be called signs of an apostle if they are the signs of everyday Christians? Okay, uh, it seems like the, the the designation would make no sense. Uh, the signs of an apostle means that these are signs that are uniquely given. Uh, to the apostles during the apostolic period here during the first century. So first of all, the first purpose of miraculous gifts was as an attestation of the apostolic message. Secondly, they were kingdom markers. Hebrews 6, 5, part of this warning passage, says here that miraculous gifts were the powers of the age to come. Okay, and so the, uh, of course, the whole argument here in in Hebrews chapter 6 is if someone saw uh, the ministry of Christ, saw the miracles that he did, tasted of the Holy Spirit, and, and denied these markers of the age to come, uh, then there is no there is no bringing those people to repentance. Okay, so, uh, so, the, so the point being that these miracles were specifically designed here to mark the arrival of the king. Okay, so, the, so, so the, just as we would expect uh, that this king 
who has been anticipated, highly anticipated, the mess, this messianic figure who's been anticipated in the Old Testament, when he comes, he's going to do certain things, miraculous things, and he does them. And it proves who he is. And so they are markers then of the arrival here of this kingdom offer. Acts 11, verses 15 to 18, I think confirms this as well. The miraculous gifts supplied evidences that the Gentiles had been directly included into God's kingdom program. Up till this point, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdoms of the earth were kept distinct. Now, that, that, that distinction is no longer maintained. The kingdom of God, the kingdom program, is now expanding. So this idea... Of, of a Jewish kingdom, which persists, is nonetheless, nonetheless uh, attended now by this statement here that we have as a responsibility uh, as, as a church, um, in, you know, kingdom parables, right? You know, that we are to be, we are to be planting seeds uh, that, that actually grow up into giant plants that populate a future kingdom. Okay, and so uh, we recognize that Gentiles, that so these 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 miracles were particularly signs to the Jews that there have been changes to the kingdom program, and that Gentiles were now uh, permitted into the people of God. So again, the absence of the completed word made it necessary for God to confirm the changes that He's making to the kingdom program. This Jewish audience was specifically singled out for the performance of miracles because of the dramatic changes in their worship. No temple ritual anymore. Sacrifices have been set aside. No more pilgrimages to to Jerusalem. Their conduct now is different. They are no longer under the law. uh, And new laws have been established. The administrative structures are gone. So the mystery of a multi-ethnic church has emerged. And all of these changes, which a Jew would naturally have viewed with a critical eye, even a skeptical one, merited proof from God that they represented legitimate changes in his administrative program. So the purposes of the miracles in the book of Acts seem twofold. One, to signal that what the apostles were teaching was true. And you should listen to them and make the transitions, the changes that they uh, anticipate. But also we find that they are their kingdom markers. They're, they're, they are indicators that something is changing within the outworking of God's kingdom program uh, throughout history. And so both of those seem to be the primary purposes, the stated purposes in Scripture of the miraculous gifts. So next week when we come together, we're going to ask the question, Do these miraculous gifts continue? But I want to make sure we start with the purposes of gifts because I think this very strongly informs the answer to that question. Okay, so questions up till this point. Okay, I think next week, yes. I've got a couple announcements. Yeah, so I think next week is is our last week, correct? And so we're going to be uh, we're going to have to be a little bit hurried through uh, through some of this, but I think we can uh, get through it. We've got some announcements. A couple of announcements. I've been given due to cancellations 
There are about eight seats available for the Ladies' Christmas Social. If you would like to attend, please see Marcy Hunter or Christy Brinkley tonight.